You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Uh, thank you. I got it. Yes. Yes. Don't. That was a sarcastic clap. <laughs> hey, so um, we had VBS this week, and I heard a fantastic story from Mary, and I love it, and I told her I'm going to share it. And so we had this prayer tent, right, that Mary and her prayer team ran, and kids were in that thing all week long. As we were in the office, I'd come out, I'd see kids going in and out. My kids went into it. Uh, my son let me know that he prayed that I would not be stressed with all the packing and un- all the unpacking we've been doing. And so he let me know everything was going to be fine because he had prayed two days in a row for that and got a hot dog sticker. So somehow that combines and my prayers are answered. I'm no longer stressed. And uh, so Mary was telling me about a little boy that came in. So when the little kids come in, she's teaching them how to pray. How do you pray to God? How do you talk to God? And so part of that is, you know, she'll say something and then repeat after me if you want to. And if you know Mary, Mary's from the South and talks like this, and she's just so sweet and Southern. And so the little boy, when she said, pray like me, prayed like Mary in a Southern accent. So he didn't just say the words, but he actually prayed in a Southern accent. So if that's your son, I'm sorry, you now have a Southern little boy, and I hope he continues to talk that way at home as well. Uh, (laughs) Gotta love BBS, right? If you have a Bible, open it up. John 8, chapter, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. It's a story that most people uh, have heard of. It's like the story last week, the bread and the fish, where it's a very popular story from the Bible. It's a very um, poignant story in the Bible. And this morning, my goal is to take a story... Uh, a 2,000-year-old story about a woman who was caught in adultery and religious leaders who want to kill her for it and this guy who lets her off the hook named Jesus, so to speak, and how does that apply to us and to who we are today? And how does it apply to the verse, the meek shall inherit the earth? The meek shall inherit the earth. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. John 8, 1 through 11, I'm going to read it and then we're going to walk through the meanings together. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. So they kept on questioning him. He straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you who is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and began to write on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they?
Hello? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. If we can get fresh batteries in that and get it working and bring it back up, that'd be muy bueno. That's very good for my English-speaking friends in here. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You know, it's an interesting story because multiple times it says that the woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the act of adultery. Now, in our modern English and politically correct society, the idea and the imagery of how this happened is hard to understand, but it's actually what you think, that these men uh, either knew what was going on, it would be like a place where this kind of thing happened, burst into the room, caught the act, and pulled her out. Now, in order to understand Mosaic Law and understand why this is such a big deal, is Mosaic Law was obviously very uh, um, forthright with its punishments. You would be stoned for something like this, right? But at the same time, there was an incredible amount of justice that was required in order to get to that level. And so I want to show you that this morning. I want to talk about what this means. And most importantly, I want to understand what you think the word meek means, right? So give me one second. I'm going to see if this mic will work when I switch it over. Anything? There we go. Jonathan Edwards, right, famous theologian and pastor, wrote a dissertation called The Nature of True Virtue. The Nature of True Virtue. It's incredibly difficult to read. Most of Jonathan Edwards' stuff was difficult to read in how he write and the language in which he wrote. Uh, But in it, he talks about the difference between common virtue and true virtue. He says, common virtue is that the deepest habits of the heart are restrained in order that we can become honest, generous, and civil people. The deepest habits, the deepest passions of your heart, you restrain them, you keep them back in order to be a courageous, civil, honest, integrity-filled person. That is common virtue. And the truth of the matter is that's how most of us teach our children. Right? Don't do that. Why? Because it said so. Don't hit your sister, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Don't talk back to your teacher. Why? Because you'll get spanked, you'll be grounded. And so what we do is the passion in them is to do things that are best for them, right? Because they're children. And we as adults don't struggle with that anymore. We've grown out of it. But they want to do what's best for them. They want to do what's funny. They want to do what's easy. They want to do what gets a laugh, maybe. They want to do what feels good. And so children's natural habits, natural passions, are to be restrained in order to be a virtuous young person. And we reinforce this idea with how we discipline our kids. Did you ever think about it like that? Am I teaching my kids to have true virtue or common virtue? Because if I am teaching my kids to be a good person, and in order to do that, you have to repress these natural feelings and hold them back, and you can't act out in such a way, then you're teaching your kids, and you were probably taught a form of common virtue. It's what Jonathan Edwards would call common virtue. But in true virtue, the deepest habits of the heart are changed, not restrained. The deepest habits, passions, longings of your heart are actually changed 
not just held back. You see, in common virtue, you take fear and you take pride. And out of fear and pride, you make a person honest and generous. Isn't that an interesting thought? Why are you so honest? Because I don't want to get in trouble. Why are you so generous with your money? Because I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to, I think, give 10% or something, and then I'll get crowns and jewels in heaven. Look, I just want God to keep blessing me, so I'm generous with my money. Fear and pride. Fear and pride. I don't want to get caught. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to get spanked. I don't want to get grounded. Whatever. The common virtue is fear and pride, and it's driven in order to make us moral, virtuous little people that will function well in society. Jesus could care less about common virtue. You see, true virtue takes fear and pride in the heart and dissolves them. It completely removes fear and pride. And it, what it does is it replaces that. It replaces fear and pride with what God calls a true and perfect love, his love. And when that gets replaced then the habits and the desires of the heart get replaced. You say, how can I change the desires of my heart? Right? Paul still struggled with it. I do the things I don't want to do, the things I want to do I don't. How can I change that? Aren't I always going to be restraining this sinful nature of mine? Isn't that idea of true virtue a pipe dream? And let's be honest, common virtue is all any of us can hope for. That we'll just try to be good people, live a good life, get to the end and go through the pearly gates or something to that effect. But here's the thing. Common virtue is about moral reformation. Morally reform you. Become a morally right person. Right? And we do that by looking at the rules. We do it by looking at the rules. This is what the Pharisees did as they brought this woman down. We're going to trap Jesus. We're going to trap him in a riddle of sorts, a conundrum of, what are you going to do, Jesus? Are you going to stone this woman in front of all these people and her blood will be on your hands? And all of a sudden, all the grace and mercy and this kind teaching that you're doing, which we all hate, then it will be for nothing. Or are you going to let her go? She was caught in the act. It is is confirmed. She is not innocent. She is guilty. We have witnesses other than one, more than one who saw it. And if you let her go then you are not upholding the Mosaic law or God's law. And if you do that, then you're not a just person and you're not worthy to be heard by the people here in the temple courts. So this is the trap. This is what they set before Jesus. They were hoping that this would be enough to trip him up. And they were concerned and consumed by common virtue. You see, these are men who followed the rules, followed the law to the letter, right? So much so that they invented more laws to follow So that way other people, it would be difficult for other people to get to the level they were at. That's common virtue. True virtue isn't about moral reformation. It's about spiritual transformation. You see, if moral reformation is concerned about the rules, spiritual transformation is concerned about the ruler. It focuses on the ruler, the originator of the rules, the king. And that's the difference. See, when Christ responds, and how Christ responds is out of spiritual transformation, is the fact that his focus is not on the rules of God, but on the ruler, the author of the rules. Do you see that difference? Do you see how it would be different for your kids, or maybe for you, 
if you were brought up being disciplined in such a way where you saw the heart of your parents. You were focused on the relationship between whoever your authority figure was as you grew up, more than you were focused on the fear of being punished. Why don't laws work? How many laws do we have in America? Does anyone know? Do you lose count? We have to make laws to amend laws for other laws. We, like, we have laws on top of laws on top of laws. How's that doing? Do we have less people in prison? Do we have less people struggling in the world because of our laws? Have we made this world safe enough yet for everyone to go out and enjoy it to their fullest? No. America is the poster child for moral reformation. We will make so many laws that it will be illegal for you to do anything wrong or think anything wrong or look at anything wrong. And then, then for sure you will have to be people who are generous and have integrity and contribute to society, right? That's what the Pharisees thought. And Jesus came and said, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to have a relationship. Get to know the originator of the rules. Get to know the author. Why are they there? You have to have a change of heart. You can't just restrain your heart. This is the entire story of the woman caught in adultery and how Christ came and the gospel, the good news of the word, is that he came down and made it possible for you and I to live a life of true virtue, not common virtue. So that's what we're going to focus on here as we go forward. So this word meekness, it gets a bad rap in our language, doesn't it? Meek, to be meek and mild. Galatians 5, did you know it's actually one of the fruits of the Spirit at the end of Galatians 5 with the, fruit, with the listing of the fruits, peace, patience, kindness, all of that. And then it's gentleness is the word used sometimes in a translation. Gentleness. And so we get this word gentleness and we look at it and gentleness sort of gets associated with being soft, doesn't it? If you're gentle, you're sort of soft. And I blame Charmin for that because... If you've seen their commercials, the bears are wiping themselves, and it is both gentle and soft. And so we assume that to be meek means to be soft, to be pansy, to be weak. And I don't think it helps that meekness and weakness rhyme together. And so when we hear the word meek or we hear somebody who is very meek, we do not picture a warrior, right? If you heard, this, this man is meek, and people began to describe him, and every way they described him, it was about his meekness, and that's the word, and then the person who walked in was a soldier, a warrior, just totally ripped out, bent in battle, hardened by battle, and yet you're like, how could this guy be somebody who's meek? I was expecting a much different person to walk through the door. And so the two problems I'm focusing on this morning here, which will help us understand how Christ responds and how he actually does uphold Mosaic law and uphold his grace and mercy in the same response is based on the fact of understanding what meekness is. And so the two problems you and I have is this. The first is uh, we don't actually know what meekness means. We don't understand what it means. And then secondly is we don't actually have it in our lives. Yeah, that second one's a big problem, right? Are you a meek person in this room? Who here is? We got one meek person back there. Can I drive with you and you'll show me your meekness? Because, see, I don't, I don't know how you can be meek and drive in Santan Valley. And I'm not, this isn't humble. That's another thing. Meekness is not humility. Humility, they're close, but it's different. Right? So, if you're meek, meek is not a lack of power. 
It's actually the opposite. Did you know that? To be meek means you actually have a great deal of power. Incredible power, either through influence or through physical strength or through intelligence. You have an incredible amount of power. But it's constrained and it's voluntarily submitted. That's meekness. So where do we see examples of that in modern day society? Somebody who has great power, but it's restrained, it's held back for the betterment and the good of others. It's hard to think of one, isn't it? It's hard to think of one where you can look and say, that person truly upholds the idea of what meekness is. At the end of Matthew 11, it says, Come unto me, all ye who are weak and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus speaking here. So he says, I am meek. Jesus identifies this as he is this, this character trait. So it can't mean that he's powerless, right? He knows he's not powerless. He says, I am the I am. I was before Abraham. I am the king of kings. He knows that he has the greatest power there is to have, and yet he identifies as being meek. So now that you know what meekness is, is it something you want? Would you want it in your life if you could have it? If you could actually take the power that Christ has, we talked about this last week, right, with the fish and the bread, and allow it to change your life, dissolve fear and pride, and change the habits and the desires of your heart to match more of the Father's. Do you want that? Do you actually want it? Or is it just another sermon that you're going to listen to? I want to show you how it changes your life. First thing is this on the caveat. I don't know about your Bible, but sometimes this section, 1 through 11 in John 8, is italicized because it's not actually John who wrote it. Scholars have come to realize this isn't his writing, his language, how he did it. And so in some Bibles, it'll be placed in Luke, and there's a general consent among the theological community that uh, an eyewitness is the one who wrote this account of Jesus with this woman caught in adultery, and I put before you that it's possible that it was the woman herself who gave the account to Luke who during his time after Christ had risen from the dead was going around gathering information, talking with the disciples and all of that. And I'll show you a little bit later why I say that. But just if you see that, if you're wondering why is this part italicized in my Bible, that's why. Uh, they often think Luke probably wrote it or another eyewitness account. Just a little bit of trivia. So what is this meekness, right? I want to read this. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? As they're saying that, Jesus decides to just bend down and he starts playing in the sand with his finger. Like you've got this whole crowd around you you are teaching. They just brought this woman in completely humiliated and shamed. And Jesus just sort of bends down and begins to write in the sand with his fingers. We don't know what he was writing, but you can tell by the poise and the character and how he is unbothered by this group of men coming in, giving him a question that would destroy a normal, just average person, and he stops and he just bends down and begins to write in the sand. 
You see, the thing, as I explained in Jewish law, is you couldn't just have a hunch that somebody was committing adultery. You couldn't even kick open the door and find two people lying in the same bed together. Because the law was so swift and so strict, you had to have two eyewitness accounts who would actually witness the act. So the fact that somebody would actually be stoned, which was the penalty for adultery in this day and age, was very rare because obviously adultery is done behind closed doors so people don't see. So they were so excited that they actually caught this woman in the act so that they could place her before Jesus. They had their two witnesses who visually saw it going on and said, there, Jesus, stone her. We're about to wipe out all of your, your gunk on grace and mercy and this kindness stuff that you're telling everybody God is about. We're going to show you what God's really about. We caught this woman sinning. Now you need to kill her. And so, due to Mosaic law, she needs to die, right? I mean, that is Mosaic law. Two, two men have found her. There's a witness in the act. She was taken in adultery, it says. And so what they're going to do is take the grace of God and show the people that he was speaking to that it's worth nothing. And so, Jesus, while he's riding in the ground, stands up and we get to see this meekness. We get to see this incredible power restrained and submitted for the benefit of the woman, and get this, for the benefit of the Pharisees as well. Because he's going to say to them, okay, you without sin cast the first stone. And here's what's so wild, and this, this hopefully will be fun for you to learn. He is not saying, you who have never sinned, cast the first stone. Did you know that? How many people thought that's what it meant? That's what I grew up thinking it meant. And in which case, they would have looked and been like, well, of course I've sinned, I've cheated, I've hit my sister, I've lied, I've, right? I grew up thinking that. Well, no, everyone's going to walk away, so nobody's allowed to judge anybody. Only Jesus can judge her because he's never sinned. That's not what he's saying. That would have not been convicting to the Pharisees standing there because they would have known they have sinned. That's why they took sacrifices to the temple to atone for their sins. So Jesus is not asking them, have you never sinned? He's specifically saying, which one of you have never sinned in this specific sin? Adultery. Wait, what? No way. These are the, the most religious men in all the land. Like they, No way. Every single one of them walks away. Why? Because they've all committed adultery. I'm not talking about the kind that when Jesus comes and says, if you've lust after a woman in your heart, then you've already committed adultery with her. I'm talking the physical act of adultery. All these men have committed it. And you notice what it says? They leave one by one, starting with who? The older ones. They're like, yeah, I've been doing that for a long time. <laughs> what else is so fascinating about this? How many people does it usually take to commit adultery? Two. So where's the man? If you caught her in the act, where's the man? You see, there was a double standard in that time that the men could go unpunished and, and their punishment would not be seen or they would just quickly go to the temple and make a sacrifice for the adultery that they committed. 
Who knows? They probably put the man up to it so they could catch the woman in it so then they could trip up Jesus. But the point is, Jesus saw past everything, and here's what's so awesome, is he uses Mosaic law. Mosaic law is this. No one is allowed to charge someone else with a crime that they themselves have committed. And so he's saying, okay, you want to use Mosaic law? Which one of you haven't committed adultery here? You throw the first stone at her. And every single one of them walked away. Let that just sort of sit with you for a second. These men who were morally reformed, they had common virtue, not true virtue. God saw past their common virtue into who they really were. I wonder sometimes if when Jesus was down there writing, if he wasn't writing their names out or their sins out on the ground in front of them. I don't know, that's not biblical, that's just, I don't know what he was writing. You see, the Greek word for meek is prouse, prouse. You know what that means? Whenever meekness is talked about in the Bible, it comes from the word for an animal that is powerful and wild, that has been tamed and is submissive and receptive to the writer. That's the definition where the word prouse comes from in the Greek. We have a dog. It's a large dog. He's a stupid dog. And he's a Rhodesian Ridgeback. He's about 120 pounds. Huge paws, big teeth, and all that, right? But my five-year-old Malia will literally crawl on him, pull on his ears, jab him in the eyes, pull on his tail. They try to ride him. They step on his paws. And he doesn't use any of his power to snap at them or bite at them. He doesn't growl at them. He takes the power that he has, which would be to tear them apart if he wanted to, and he submits it to his owner. And yet at the same time, I got to see him defend one of the kids when someone came to our house, someone we know, someone he knew, and uh, my wife and I were in the back bedroom. We told them just to come on in. Everything will be fine. And we uh, hear this low growl going on after we hear him come through the door, and he's put himself between Malia, the one who pokes him in the eye, pulls on his ear, steps on him, put himself between her and this person, and just growled with all the hair up on his body and backing her up away from him. It's fascinating when you see incredible power submitted and receptive to the authority of something else. That is what it means to be meek. And this is what Jesus is exemplifying here. You see, he says to Pilate, I could have a legion of angels come down and set me free right now. He's not powerless down here. This idea that he was just man down here until he died and rose again and then he became fully God and fully man is such a misrepresentation of the truth. He had the full power of God the entire time he was on this earth. And he acknowledged it. I could call a legion of angels down right now. The devil even knew that, didn't he? Call your angels down. Jump off the roof. Let them tend to you. But he submitted that power so that the woman and the men who accused her could find grace and mercy. So not only does he uphold his decision by using the Mosaic law, right? So all the men leave. That means there is still one man there. There is still one man there who legally and lawfully can condemn her for what she's done. It's Jesus. So it says he looks up from writing in the sand and he says, where are your accusers? And she said, there's none. They've all left. He says, Neither do I, what, 
condemn you. Go and sin no more. Why did he say that? And most importantly, if you're like me, how did he have the right to say that when she still, the punishment still needs to happen? She still sinned. What she did was still wrong in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the culture. How can he just say, go and sin no more, I don't condemn you? Because the very stone that they were holding, he would receive upon himself. This is the message of the gospel. He would receive the stone, the wrath of God, in the form of the cross, and all of sin and all of condemnation would fall upon himself. And he knew that. So he could look her in the eye and say, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Because I will receive the condemnation for you. And look at the importance. I said this at the beginning. How that happens. It does not say, go and sin no more, and I will not condemn you. Right? That'd be conditional. If you go and sin no more, that you'll be set free from this crime that you've done. Look at the Israelites. When Moses goes before him. Moses, by the way, in Deuteronomy 12.3, was called the meekest man in all the earth. And he goes and visits the most powerful man, Pharaoh, in all the earth, and demands, what's the famous line? Let my people go. Give me your slave labor force. Give me your military force. I want you to give me the thing that helps make you the number one economic society in the world, and I want you to just give them back to me with no repercussions. And if you don't, a bunch of bad stuff is going to happen to you. How in the world does the most meekest man go before the most powerful man because the meekest man has a power that the most powerful man can't even fathom behind him? That's how. He was submitted to the power and the authority of God Almighty. And so he was able to go before the earth's most powerful man and demand the Israelite people back. But notice this, when the Israelite people leave, right, that's when they get the Ten Commandments, don't they? God doesn't give them the Ten Commandments while they're in captivity and say, hey, Israel, if you obey these ten things for the next ten years, I'll set you free. No, he sets them free and then says, here is my will and my desires for you. There are a lot of people in here right now who struggle with that idea that I have done, I am that woman brought before Christ. I've been a Christian and I'm still that person brought before Christ. Caught in the act of the very sin that I'm supposed to abhor. Caught in the act of the very thing that as a good Christian I'm supposed to have gotten rid of. God was supposed to change my life, right? Remember spiritual transformation, not moral reformation? Well, it's not changed. I still struggle with it. It still completely eats at me. The habit continually wrecks my mind. The, the addiction continually lives and breathes inside of me. And there are so many Christians that live in this shame and you're in here today and you live in this shame and you won't even look at Christ because the accusations against you are too much. Even when those accusations are coming from yourself. And so we look away and we shy away from Jesus and we continue to let the accusations of the world and our own sin be like stones that are being hurled at us. And here's the beauty of Jesus Christ. He says, none of those do I accuse you of. 
I have borne all of that. Would you come and receive me? Would you come and receive me? I was talking with someone in between services and the Lord gave me this picture because it's what my kids have been asking for, going to Sunsplash. And there's a people who believe that all people on this earth are saved because Jesus died on the cross for everybody and saved all of mankind and took all of sin upon himself so everybody will be in heaven because that's what Jesus did. Well, it's kind of like this, and maybe this will help you understand that that's not true. It would be like if I bought Golfland Sunsplash tickets for all of you in here and said, you're paid for, your debt has been paid for. Go, you may enjoy this golf and this land and the splash. Some of you will choose to go. Some of you will receive the gift. Some of you will accept the fact your debt's been paid for and enter through those gates into a watery, splashy festivity of fun and fruitfulness. And others will say, no thanks. No thanks, I appreciate that you did that, but that's not for me. Do you see it now? Every single person, because of Christ's death on the cross, has a right to enter the kingdom of God. Not every single person will choose to. Not every single person will want to. And one of the ways that you get to a place where you can see the beauty and power and grace of Christ is to see how much he loves you. So I'm going to close with this, and I'll invite the band out, because this is, gosh, saying Jesus loves you is such a trite thing, and it's like, I know, Jesus loves me, but, but give, me, give me two minutes here to, to explain this. At the end of second service last week, right, with that message, incredible, incredible message, incredible word on the bread and the fish. We had an awesome prayer time here. God's spirit was moving. I'm speaking with someone at the end of service. I ask him how his week's going, and he says, you know, I'm anxious. I was anxious all week, struggling, but, you know, the Lord gave me this verse, that perfect love casts out fear. And man, the Holy Spirit just right hooked, right? Right into my head. And, I was, and I've heard that before. I've preached on that before. But all of a sudden, I thought to myself, because I struggle with anxiety. I've struggled with depression over the last year. And I begin to think to myself, well, wait a minute. If that's true, then that means that the perfect love of God in my mind, my heart, and my soul cannot coincide with fear being in my mind and heart and my soul, Right? If that's a true statement, if it's a true statement, then those two things can't coincide together. So I begin to think over the last three years, all the times when anxiety hits or wake up in the middle of the night with a panic attack or you just have this depression that you can't explain, right? And I begin to think, what do I do in those times when I go before the Lord? What do you do? Sometimes you worship. Sometimes maybe it's sometimes I'm just so desperate, I just cry out and say, God, help help me. I can't breathe. I'm, I can't get out of bed. I'm so depressed. I don't know why. I have no reason to be. But you know what I don't usually do? I don't usually just stop and focus on how much he loves me. I mean, just let it wash over you. Can you imagine what it felt like for that woman to be cast out in the most humiliating way? in front of all your neighbors and all, your peop- and all the people who know you. And to know that your life was over, you had been caught, it's done. The penalty is death through stoning. And now you stand before Christ and he says, I do not condemn you for what you've done. Go and sin no more. This is why I think this is who Luke talked to. 
I think Luke got the eyewitness account from the woman because I don't think her life was ever the same, just like the woman at the well, remember her? I don't think her life was ever the same again after meeting Jesus. And so I put this to practice. So I, this week I had a, I woke up at 2 a.m. Wednesday night with one of these panic attacks. They come out of nowhere, you're just sweating, uh, your heart's beating fast. It's funny, you wake up, you're disoriented, you feel like the whole world just falling and crashing around you. And uh, I remembered this, I remembered what he said and this epiphany and I just started to focus on the beauty and how much God loves me. And I let perfect love flood in to what was a panic situation. And usually I'm up for a while when that happens and then you calm down. All I know is that I was waking up the next morning at like 7 a.m. I had somehow just fallen back to sleep because perfect love casts out fear, anxiety, depression, anger, bitterness. Are you angry? Focus on how much God loves you and what he's done for you. And the other things cannot exist at the same time. I spoke with Chad, our, our theology major, and now a master's in divinity through Liberty University, and he uh, was listening to Tim Jennings, and Tim Jennings is this guy, and he's talking about science, and he said there are two parts in the brain. There's a part that lights up when you think about being loved by a being greater than yourself, like scientists. This is not Christian scientists. This is scientists. There's a part in you that lights up, that, that, that releases chemicals in your brain. And then there's another part when you're anxious or depressed or full of fear that also lights up and will release certain chemicals. Did you know that together they cannot both releasing chemicals at the same time? It's a physical impossibility in your body. And if one, if the fear one is releasing chemicals, this one can come and overtake it and then this one will stop. Do you think Jesus knew that when he said, my perfect love casts out fear? Do you think he understood how he built your body in such a way that that you were made to worship and love him. And when you do that, the things of this world will grow faintly dim. So we're gonna close like this. We're gonna close how we're gonna close all summer. But this time I want you to pray with someone who maybe you know or who's near you or a family member. And I want you to pray this and you can talk to God however you want. But I want you to ask that the Lord would show you his perfect love this week in the midst of a trial. Lord, would you help me see your perfect love this week in the midst of a trial? I mean, in the midst of fear or depression, sorrow, grief, anger, bitterness, whatever it is, jealousy. And would I take a moment and would I focus on your love? I don't want to pray for you. I want you to pray. So we're going to take a time. The band will play. And then when you're done praying with whoever's around you, and if you're here by yourself, then just turn around, step out. If you see someone sitting by themselves not praying, then you reach out. And, and remember, just the Christian shoulder touch is all we're doing here. And then when you're done, feel free. We've got three uh, stations for communion in the front, three in the back. We just ask you have a relationship with Jesus if you're going to partake. If you have questions about communion, our prayer partners will be up front. If you want to come up and pray with one of our prayer partners or one of our pastors, they'll be up front. Um, but then once it looks like everyone's done praying and taking communion, we'll close in worship and we'll head out. Let's pray. Father God. Father, 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 thank you, Lord. Jesus, thank you for receiving upon yourself the punishment that I had coming.
for defeating death, for defeating sin, for defeating the very powers of darkness, Lord. Help us remember now as we pray. Help us remember now as we partake of the sacrament of communion, your holy blood and the body that gave us this gift, Lord, that paid the debts. There are men and women in here who have not received it. I pray they'd receive it this morning. I pray your spirit would move mightily this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we just lower the lights? Go ahead, grab someone near you and pray. I don't want to be the only one praying and having all the fun, so. Take a moment, and when you're done praying, you can go ahead and get communion if you wish. And we'll close in worship.